Welcome to Viral, the podcast for the public's health. Today, we are going to talk about the field of global health, which is kind of a funny term when you think about it, because aren't we all on the same globe? Well, if you're a flat earther, then we're on the same plate. Plate? I don't know. I don't know. But we're all on the same globe. Planet Earth, right? Um, In reality, the field of global health is another way of just saying public health. And anything that talks about the health of Western countries, like the United States, should probably be called U.S. public health or something like that. But we're, like, number one, so when we say public health, like, we're really talking about the U.S. It's kind of interesting that the field of global health is sort of a subset of public health as a whole. It's like a lot. Anyways, typically when you encounter the phrase global health, what it is talking about is the health of populations in countries other than the United States, or between the United States and some other part of the world, especially if it's a communicable disease that could affect the United States. Wow. You know, the more we talk about it, the more selfish the United States appears, doesn't it? It's really just about us. Yeah, I mean... Manifest destiny, right? Yeah. Oh. Well, we would be remiss to talk about global health without mentioning the World Health Organization. Working through offices in more than 150 countries, WHO staff work side-by-side with governments and other local partners to ensure the highest obtainable health for all people. They're kind of like how in the U.S. we have the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but their jurisdiction is the entire world. Eh, No small feat, right? No. Um, However, we haven't always had a World Health Organization. Do you know when the WHO was was founded? The WHO was founded, um, oh my gosh, wasn't it in the... I know it was founded after the United Nations was founded, correct? Um, Very close. They were founded the same year. Oh, okay. 1946. Okay. So, also in 1946, like you mentioned, the United Nations held their first meeting in London. UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, was also founded. UNICEF the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund was also created in the same year. All right, lots of um, acronyms. Great. Yeah. But more relevantly, in June of 1946, during the International Health Conference held in New York City, the World Health Organization was created and they adopted a constitution. So... The U.S. Surgeon General at that time, who also was the president of this um, international health conference that created the World Health Organization, was a man named Dr. Thomas Peran. And he's a pretty interesting guy, so let me give you a little bit of background about Dr. Peran. Born in Maryland in the year 1892, Thomas Peran attended Georgetown University's School of Medicine and entered a career in research. He worked in a lab for Dr. Joseph Kinyun, founder of the Public Health Services Hygienic Laboratory, which was later renamed to the National Institute of Health. 
Very cool. In 1930. There, he began studying sanitation and venereal diseases in rural areas. He later became the health commissioner of New York in 1930. One of his big causes was to shift the public's perception of syphilis as a moral failing towards that of a medical condition and created a syphilis control campaign employing rapid treatment centers that utilized new sulfa drugs and later penicillin. Sounds like maybe we're fighting the same thing today. Yeah. Well, he did create the World Health Organization. He did um, do a lot of good work, but his record isn't exactly all that clean. As most You're waiting people during for that the... time. But many people pin the notoriously racist and shameful Tuskegee syphilis study on a man named Taliaferro Clark, but it was during the tenure of Dr. Peran as U.S. Surgeon General when the study began. Oh, man. And Dr. Peran himself said about Macon County, Alabama in a 1932 memo that if one wished to study the natural history of syphilis in the Negro race uninfluenced by treatment, this county would be an ideal location for such a study. Oh, boy. So he essentially let it happen. Yeah, and was like, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is the place it could be if it were to happen, guys. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. He also was um, more or less overseeing the group that was in charge of the uh, Guatemala syphilis study. Oh. So the Tuskegee syphilis study lasted from the 1930s until the 1970s, where 600 black men were enrolled, 400 of them positive with syphilis, and left them untreated, even though we had the drugs to treat them and had for decades. Not great. No. Uh, Terrible, in fact. So I mention Dr. Peran's story not to try and throw dirt upon his reputation, but because... Clearly something beneficial has come out of his career, Um, but rather to give context about a system that doesn't exist in a bubble. Uh, These organizations are made up of people, people are flawed, and products of their worldviews, and should neither be vilified nor worshipped based on one deed alone. That was really profound. Um, yeah, we find out that the the U.S. Public Health Service did a lot of terrible things, but they've done a lot of good things, and I think we should not necessarily try to bury the terrible things, but learn from them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing with Margaret Sanger, right? Like, she, you know, promoted and fought for birth control for women, but she also was a proponent of eugenics. Right. So... So, okay, let's get back on track. We're talking about global health. Um, The World Health Organization, uh, they still exist in 2017 and provide subject matter expertise on health issues to countries all over the world, and their data and peer-reviewed journals are some of the best ones out there. So it seems like every few years, 
the mainstream media has a general freakout about some new or emerging disease. Uh, SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, H1N1, the list probably goes on and on. In each instance, we have a disease that scares Americans because of its otherness. Like, it's some kind of exotic thing that is coming to invade our um, beautiful suburban <laughs> perfection. And it strikes fear because of that. But then, ultimately, the panic subsides and we go about our lives. So, did it just go away? No. In most cases, it did not just magically go away. It's because of rapid response teams set up in advance by the CDC and the WHO and many other local health agencies and ministries of health to surveil, assess, and answer the threat that it doesn't become a pandemic. Oh, vocabulary word time. For those who don't know, and we're going to mention this a little bit in our interview, you're going to hear some of these words, so just be prepared. Endemic is a word we use to describe a disease or condition that is regularly found among particular people or in a certain area. So, for example, you would expect arthritis to be found more frequently in older people, right? Sure. Epidemic is a word to describe a widespread occurrence of a disease or condition in a community at a particular time that is above normal levels. So, let's say high rates of arthritis in babies. Oh, wow. Okay. That's probably something you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally see. Um, pandemic is a word to describe a worldwide epidemic or an epidemic that crosses state and country boundaries. All new Earth babies now have arthritis. All new Earth babies. <laughs> okay. Those poor little arthritic Earth babies. Luckily, the Mars babies weren't affected. That's right. So, here are some famous pandemics throughout history. Number one, the Plague of Athens. Like Athens, Georgia? Nope, not Athens, Georgia. Oh. I'm talking about the first Athens. Oh, okay. In 430 BC, a terrible disease devastated ancient Greece during the second year of the Peloponnesian War. We aren't quite sure what pathogen was responsible, but some historians say whatever it was killed almost two-thirds of all Athenians at the time. So can you imagine if the Battle of Thermopylae, visually depicted by Zack Snyder's film 300, had happened in 430 BC instead of 480 BC? Can you picture Gerard Butler's King Leonidas, his perfect six-pack covered in ulcers, oh God. and battling the Persian army while everyone simultaneously diarrheas themselves? I would not want to see it in, in Zack Snyder's version, because it would be horrible. In HD? Oh, 3D. In 3D? Oh, New God. 3D? Oh, man. No? Maybe no, not. I'm, I'm good. Okay. Number two, the Antonine Plague. I would like to do an episode about this one all in itself. Possibly smallpox or measles, it followed soldiers coming home to Rome 
from military campaigns in the Middle East around the year AD 180. It is estimated to have caused 2,000 deaths per day in Rome, and in total to have killed 5 million people. Yeah, and that actually was covered in um, Jennifer Wright's book. It was. It was a really... Good callback. Yeah, it was terrifying. (laughs) Number three, the plague of Justinian in 541 AD. This was our good old buddy, the bubonic plague, caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, the first known bubonic plague pandemic in recorded human history. Number four, the Black Death of the 14th century. Bring out your dead! (laughs) Bring out your dead! Yes, as uh, historically uh, depicted in Monty Python. That's right. Number five, the Spanish flu. Fun fact, the Spanish flu has nothing to do with Spain. It actually originated in Kansas. Thanks, Kansas. Kansas. (laughs) At the time... Spain wasn't involved in World War I, so they hadn't imposed any kind of wartime censorship of the media, so it got a lot of press attention there. And so it was like, hey, you guys reading all these news reports coming out from Spain about this like, terrible flu? Because they were the only ones really reporting on it. In the U.S. and in other wartime countries, they didn't want their opponents to know that they were weakened by disease, so they suppressed any story about the flu. This is another one I want to talk about in more depth someday because it's really interesting. It is very interesting. They, yeah, they were like, oh, um, we probably should tell people like not to have parades and stuff. And then they were like, no, we gotta... Gotta have that parade. Gotta have that parade, Gotta have that parade, gotta, though. Gotta build that morale. Oh, wait, everybody died. everyone in the parade. Everybody just died. Okay. It was, it was worth it, though. Worth it. It was a great parade. Ticker tape. Woo! So, in summary, I think the field of global health really should just be called public health. I mean, that it's sort of, like, come on. Quit pushing your agenda on us. But it's a super important field, and those who work in it often, um, they speak multiple languages, work in difficult and often resource-poor environments, and sometimes have to put their lives on the line so that we have the freedom to take public transportation or leave our houses without the fear of getting some rare communicable disease from another part of the world that we've never been exposed to before. With that being said, um, who are we interviewing today? Well, today we are interviewing Andrew Romaner, who worked at the Carter Center, and we're going to talk about the illustrious guinea worm. Ooh, the guinea worm. Is yes. that a worm where its little face is like a guinea pig? And it kind of goes, weak, 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 weak. And it comes out. You may want to think about that image when we actually talk about it because it's obviously a hundred times more horrifying. Okay, so I obviously have a lot yeah. to learn. We're yep. going to do this interview. Yes. Um, but I'm still going to be thinking about that. And honestly, even just you describing it like that is terrifying. Like a little furry worm and no, it's like, No, I'm not... No. Okay. Pass. Sorry. Pass on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Enjoy our interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't get the, the yoo-hoo part, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. I know. 
Well, that's okay. We, we can talk more about you. There's we could. a popular import to South Sudan. It's a product called Milo, which is sort of like powdered yuhu that comes from Britain. Really? Yeah. Oh. Sometimes How does that you taste? can drink it hot, you can compare? drink it cold. Um, I can't imagine hot yuhu. It's sort of like hot chocolate, oh. but, you know. <laughs> But you know, a not little, a little bit more with the with like a kiss of a brand cereal flavor. That's really good marketing. You should really send that into them with a kiss of a brand cereal. Hot yoohoo. There's a difference between hot chocolate and like making an Ovaltine hot. Oh, it's it's a lot gross. like Ovaltine. But like Ovaltine has to be drunk cold. Like yoohoo has to also be drunk ice cold. If there has to be a specific temperature to drink something, I feel like that there's something wrong with that. I don't know. I, I like my beer nice and cold. Mm -hmm. That's true. But there are certain beers that are supposed to be drank at room temperature, too. This episode is brought to you by Yoohoo and other beverages. <laughs> Pretty much. That, I mean, we'll, we'll take sponsorships where we can get them. We might have to do a little bit better about talking up this product before we get the sponsorship. Oh, that's true. We were a, a little disparaging <laughs> of our products. Yeah. Uh, some people are desperate for exposure. Hey. Any press is good press. I was just going to say that. Good job. Good job. Yoo-hoo. Any press is good press. <laughs> yes. And scene. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, yeah. So, welcome to the show. Andrew Thanks. Romaner formerly of the Carter Center. Explain to us what the Carter Center is and what you did for the Carter Center. Sure. So the Carter Center is the home of all of Jimmy Carter's nonprofit and philanthropic activities. Uh, global health is part of their mandate, but they also have a range of domestic programs. Uh, Rosalind Carter is a big champion of mental health. Um, within the Carter Center's international programming, their marquee effort is the eradication of a parasitic disease called guinea worm, or Dracunculus menensis. Decades into this program, we thought that guinea worm affected only humans. Uh, we'd heard all kinds of stories from the field about it being in other animals, and we said, oh no, you know, that's probably just a related species. Guinea worm is a human-only parasite. It's so specialized. We were wrong. It lives in dogs. Um, oh, wow. There are dog cases in Chad. Uh, it seems like the last redoubt of the worm will be dogs in Chad, not people anywhere. Interesting. Dogs so may not be a totally competent host. It may be that we are, are sort of forcing it into a genetic bottleneck and it'll never recover from being in the dog population, but we don't really want to take that chance. Interesting. So, um, how do you, first of all, with dogs, how do you eradicate it among the dog population? Well, I had been cleared out for a year or two before we had this mm -hmm. realization that, oh, it lives in other mammals. Uh, but I did bring this document, which is the June 15th, 2017 issue of the Guinea Worm Wrap-Up, produced mm -hmm. by our friends at the Centers for Disease Control. And as you can imagine, the wrap-ups lately talk at great length about the dogs. Huh. Um, so 
Case containment, which is an intervention we are familiar with in humans, works in dogs too. Keep the dog out of the water source. Mm -hmm. We can talk more about the life cycle of guinea worm in just a minute. Ooh, yes. Um, yeah. But we also have an antiparasitic drug for dogs that I had never seen used in humans. It's called, let's see. I'm just edit these long silences out. Mm -hmm. That's what oh, I do. yeah. The magic of radio. Advocate. That's what it's called? Mm-hmm. Manufactured by Bayer. Advocate. We couldn't think of any other pharmaceutical name. <laughs> so the, the vector control agent we use uh, for water sources is abate. It's actually an organophosphate called temphos, but... Yeah, abate. And do you put that in the water, treat the water? Or we do. That's another oh. important intervention that we uh, have in our toolkit. Mm. Awesome. We should, we should probably talk about the life cycle for guinea worms so that all these yes, interventions please. begin to make sense. Yes. So um, guinea worm is an organism that has a couple of stages in its life cycle. Let's start from a human with a hanging worm who, to seek some relief... Uh, from that painful burning sensation, submerges the worm in pond where everyone is going to fetch their water. Now, when you say hanging worm, you mean it's literally hanging out of their skin, correct? I've got like, photos. Yeah, Here's a hanging worm. You're not squeamish, are you? I say mm. after she after after <laughs> showing her the photo. So obviously, our listeners can't see this. Uh, it's essentially a wound with a worm hanging out of it. In this mm -hmm. particular photo, it's a it's a foot. Your friend Google can help you out. Yeah, if you dare. <laughs> so, you have. So you this have is this is the beginning of the life cycle. This is a mature female worm, uh, having emerged from a human case. Awesome. Gross. Not, and... I mean, not awesome, but. The most of the length of that worm, and the worm is probably a lot longer than that. They can be a meter long. Whoa! That's all larvae inside. Oh! So when that worm um, gets the sensation of being submerged in water, she will release thousands and thousands of guinea worm larvae. The larvae will grow in the water. They'll molt twice. Um, oh. They have to be swallowed by a water insect called a copepod, or a cyclops. They're called Ooh. cyclops because it looks like they have only one eye. Okay. Um, in, in the gut of the water flea, that's where they'll grow and molt twice. After that second molt, if a human comes and drinks the water containing the flea, having molted twice, the larvae are now tough enough to withstand acid in a human stomach. Interesting. So... Weird. Yeah. I didn't know that step about the water flea. Yes. I just thought that they release their larva and then you drink the larva or something. I didn't know about the molting twice part. That's, that's an interesting little like evolutionary quirk. It sure thing. is. It's the recipe. So yeah. the, um, so abate, temphos, or, organ or our organophosphate, what it does is actually kill the water fleas so that they sink to the bottom. So anybody going in to fetch water is just very unlikely to act in, unintentionally consume a copepod. Hmm. 
And that's why part of the reason our filters can be so big is we're actually filtering out the infected water fleas, mm -hmm. not the guinea worm larvae themselves. Interesting. Hmm. Ah, water fleas. Water fleas. You know, land fleas are bad enough. Yeah. What? Uh, you know what's next? Space fleas. Space fleas. Well, thankfully they can't fly. Or can they? Oh. Oh, man. They got thrusters. In, in a zero-gravity environment, it doesn't take much to fly. That's oh, true. That's true. That's true. Space fleas, guys. Oh. So, once a human has ingested an infected copepod, they will experience no symptoms for about a year. Oh, while the worm wow. is slowly growing inside of them and burrowing through the tissue to the long bones, <gasps> trying to get to a position where it can later emerge. Uh, oh my gosh, the long bones? Yeah, arms and legs. So, uh, viral listeners, your hosts look so horrified <laughs> right now. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Um, that's, uh, yep. So, <laughs> that one year, that one year period is important because uh, there's got to be surface water, so in places where guinea worm is endemic, rainy season, so you, you want to time it so that it's the rainy season again, so that that worm has a good chance of, of, com of emerging at a time when the host is going to contaminate a water source by going to bathe or going to fetch water or just submerging their limb in water to try to get some cooling from the burning sensation of an emerging worm. Crazy. So about a year later, when a worm is ready to come out, you'll experience some itching sensations, some swelling locally, uh, a general malaise that could easily be mistaken for malaria, and then a blister will form. And within th three days of the blister forming, the blister will rupture, and you will begin to see the tip of a worm. Oh. Hello. <laughs> Hey, uh, here. So, is this fatal, or is it just incredibly uncomfortable? Yeah, like, that was kind of my question. Like, what's so the... this is a disease of poverty and disability that affects the poorest populations mm -hmm. around the world. The one saving grace is it's generally not fatal. But uh, it's not something you want to so have happen. So, uh, long-term consequences of guinea worm. Um, well, so the short-term consequences. This happens during rainy season. So. If you are tending your animals or harvesting your crops and you are afflicted with guinea worm, it makes it very difficult for you to do that, setting you and your family up for uh, possible food insecurity during the subsequent year. Other problems. Um, as you can imagine, that's a pretty nasty wound, so that can, that's pretty susceptible to secondary infection. And again, these are, these are communities without good access to primary care, without good access to antibiotics. Just keeping these wounds clean is a pretty full-time job. And then the last problem you have to worry about is if a worm... So during a worm's life cycle inside the human body, the living worm is pretty good at hiding from the human immune system for reasons I've never seen explored. Oh, man. Yeah. Normally, okay. a large foreign body would, would oh, yeah. prompt an immune response. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if a worm lays eggs and then dies without anybody having manually extracted that worm, um, its ability to camouflage itself from the immune system goes away. So all of a sudden, the immune system says, What is this? 
And with a foreign body that large, the, the immune response is actually to calcify it. Oh, so if, wow. if you've got it going through a joint, a knee or an elbow, uh, you'll get a phenomenon called contricture as you have this calcified um, mass there, which results in disability. Oh, absolutely. God. Wow. Good God. <laughs> the level of disgust that you are feeling yeah. is what propelled us as an international community under the leadership of the Carter Center to say, enough is enough. We're not going to do this anymore. We have highly effective interventions that are inexpensive. We're going to get rid of this disease. Right. Yes. Exactly. And um, while you were describing that, I also happened to notice the logo on your shirt, which, as, Lindsay, as a graphic designer, uh, is it typical to include... A, an infected leg with a worm coming out of it as your logo because well I feel like I need to, to hear be, your artistic to be, um, to be fair you're working with many different audiences that have different language mm-hmm. uh, you know requirements That's and so true. therefore you want to be able to visually com- you know ba- basically visually communicate what exactly you're doing there and if someone says oh shrimp leg I think they mean guinea worm. <laughs> now that, that, the that's the S-S-G-W-E-P, which so I have to... Sudan, guinea worm, eradication, eradication program. Eradication program, okay. How so did you, you, how did you that? say that? Like, S-S-S-G-W-E-P? <laughs> S-S-G-W-E-P? Uh, yes, S-S-G-W-E-P. So occasionally we would say G-W-E-P, um, but mostly yeah. we would just sort of identify ourselves as being the, from the guinea worm program. Okay. Because at first I thought it was like the the shape of South Sudan, and then I was like, no, I don't think that's the shape of South Sudan. Oh, oh, that's Wow, South Sudan looks exactly like a leg and a foot. (laughs) Yep, yep. Did they plan that? Mm Mm-hmm. They did a really... Good sidebar. Italy kind of already has that going, but... That's right. (laughs) Uh, You know, and and the the eradication program is really focusing kind of on um, treating the water and training the people to get their water sources using filters and things like that. But what about, it seems like it's also more of a disease of systemic poverty, lack of infrastructure. Uh, In an earlier episode, we talked about how just creating water treatment plants in the United States did a lot for helping um, Mm -hmm. cases of cholera and other um, waterborne illnesses. is the Carter Center looking at any of those kind of options? I mean, it's like, it's so hard when you're dealing with a, a country that may off, may not have a very stable government yet or, or the infrastructure at all. Yeah. To, um, to put those things in place. So you have to look at what's most feasible, mm-hmm. I guess. So we have three uh, primary interventions that we do. Any one of them in place is sufficient to interrupt transmission of the disease. We do all three because we want some redundancy. Uh, Those are case containment, meaning finding the cases, keeping them bandaged, keeping them in a case containment center where we can provide services and treatment, and also, conveniently, these places are fenced off so no one is going to go wander away and contaminate a water source. We also have the ability to distribute filters of various sizes, uh, and then we have abate that organophosphate that we talked about uh, as a as a method of vector control. A guinea worm program in an endemic community is going to 
hit all three of those as hard as they can all the time. Now, filtering falls really under the, the rubric of safe water, and the ability to drill a borehole is also a safe water intervention. The Carter Center doesn't uh, take responsibility for developing that kind of infrastructure. The Guinea Worm Eradication Program is a global effort, and the, the safe water development, like boreholes, has been tasked to UNICEF. Mm, so mm -hmm. that's their piece of this. Okay, so obviously you're working with a lot of different partners because if you're going to do something that's this global, you're going to have to work with other people. So what have, what are other organizations that you worked with? So the Carter Center really takes point on clearing out endemic areas, working with the ministries of health and the host country governments. They're actually leading the effort. The Carter Center provides technical personnel and resources to support those efforts. Uh, then we have UNICEF providing the safe water component and the WHO providing a lot of the documentation and they'll be the ones to come in at the end and certify that in fact we've interrupted transmission. Very cool. Very How cool. did you get into this field? Because it's a very specific disease eradication program. Was it more so your wanting to get involved with an organization that's doing good work? Um, or was there something specific about this that spoke to your interests and, and experience? Lindsay might have heard this story, so bear I, with me. I want to hear it again. You got it. <laughs> I had just finished my second term in AmeriCorps, and when you serve in AmeriCorps, you get an education award. I was lucky enough to get through undergrad before starting AmeriCorps without much in the way of student loan debt, so my Ed Award was burning a hole in my pocket. I'm like, maybe I'll go to grad school, but for what? I had a lot of interests and I wasn't sure. And then I stumbled on the TED website, and the third TED Talk I ever watched was by a gentleman named Larry Brilliant, who was an MD who was instrumental in the um, smallpox eradication program. And I had never really thought through, oh, you know, disease-causing organisms are just organisms. We could drive them into extinction. That's what disease eradication means. It, it never dawned on me that, that you could take a parasite or a, or a disease and get rid of it that way. So having watched Larry Brilliant's TED Talk about his time eradicating smallpox, I thought, oh, well, that's probably it. That's probably the only disease we could ever really get rid of like that. And I said, why, well, why don't I just go real quick, look up disease eradication on Wikipedia and see if there are some other diseases amenable to this approach. And to my incredible delight, I learned that polio and guinea worm were up for eradication now. I thought, oh, I didn't miss the boat. I could, I could be a part of an effort like this. Oh, goodness. What do I have to do? What do I have to study in grad school to go do this? Uh, oh, public health. And that's when I learned that uh, the University of South Florida in beautiful Tampa, Florida, where I was living at the time, had a MPH with a uh, concentration in global health practice. I thought, oh, well, that's probably perfect. Um, so I went and 
had a conversation with one of the admissions counselors. I started out as a non-degree seeking student, took a couple of courses to get my feet wet, did all right, transferred to degree seeking, and my first job right out of grad school, they shipped me out to South Sudan to go do this. Oh man, that's really cool and very interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that, uh, that TED talk in our show notes so people can, can watch it and also become inspired. <laughs> yeah, and we, um, in our, we did an episode on like fellowships and things you can do after you graduate and one of the things was AmeriCorps. So, um, AmeriCorps, I was in AmeriCorps in my undergrad and I loved That's it. That's right, I forgot. Yeah, you've also had some other really cool um, experiences that are, um, I would say, kind of like emergency response that mm -hmm. I think also kind of maybe help solidify your path. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. So during my first year in AmeriCorps, I was a wildland firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service. And then during my second year in AmeriCorps, we were still doing a lot of long-term recovery in Louisiana and Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. So I had a couple of projects along the North Gulf Coast, one of which was a somewhat nebulous effort to stand up some community computer centers. Um, you know, people were at first trying to do some of their FEMA paperwork online. But by the time we got, a, uh, by the time some of the organizations in the community got a grant to get computers and get some money for staff to make the center available to people that maybe didn't have computers of their own, a lot of the FEMA paperwork had already been processed because people are resourceful and they use friends and family elsewhere. And so we had these computer centers. We didn't have much to do with them. There was the thought, okay, maybe we'll use them to distribute health information, have people look up healthy recipes online. Um, you are acquainted with the notion of a food desert. Mm -hmm. um, so New Orleans is probably one under the best case scenario, but certainly post-Katrina, when two-thirds of the population had cleared out, uh, that, was, that was as severe a food desert as you were likely to find in the U.S. So to think that giving people access to healthy recipes was, was going to be the game changer there was a little bit naive. Yeah. Just a wee bit. But uh, my team and I did have the opportunity to sit down with the director of the city health department who was about to publish some new data on suicide rates in the city after the storm. So we got to look at that data and hear his thoughts about it before his article had been published. And that was my first time interacting with anyone who had a titled role in the public health world. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I, um, I think it's really interesting that, uh, I mean, obviously there are a lot of programs within AmeriCorps where it's almost like domestic mm -hmm. humanitarian response. Um, and I think that's a great way to kind of get your feet wet, especially if you're thinking about working in global health, specifically going over and doing, you know, disaster relief or humanitarian assistance. So, um, so yeah. Uh, what would you tell somebody that's thinking about going into global health? Do it. Uh, don't expect that your first job after graduation is going to be pulling in six figures in Geneva. Uh, I think we had some people from our graduating class who suffered from that misapprehension. They learned after they hit the job market that it doesn't work that way. 
Yeah. Um, those, those spots in Geneva are out there, but it really helps to have five and ten years of relevant experience before you get one. That's very true. That's very true. So what are you up to now? So I came back to the U.S. in 2013 and noticed that everyone was running third-party software on their phones. I learned what an app was. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, Wait, what is this? Okay, well, this is neat. Uh, I thought maybe I want to be a part of that. So I started a tech company with a friend. And it didn't take off. And then I started another tech company with another friend. And it didn't take off. Um, and then I spent some time working in uh, politics in D.C. Interesting. I, I liked being in D.C., but I didn't particularly care for what I was doing. So then I started another tech company with a friend. Um, and that one went through a couple of pivots and in its current form is still up and running. And I work with Lindsay's husband. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very true. Maybe we could do one other podcast about maternal and child health someday. Yes. Uh, and, and talk about what we're, what we're looking to do with that uh, particular project, which is all around giving moms access to better help when they've made the decision to breastfeed. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. no, that's definitely on the schedule. Oh, nice. So that's, uh, it's on there. Good. You know, as I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of topics in public health that we can cover this podcast will probably last 600 years because Good. of that. Because we still have to get to space fleas at some point mm, yeah, when that's, that's right. a thing. So, but, Well, it's uh, good that you're planning that far out. Um, so that company is still pre-revenue. What I actually do to make ends meet these days is I support entrepreneurs in a program run by the county of Pasco, which is just north of where we are seated today. Um, they have a network of entrepreneur centers, and I am a program manager at one of those locations. Nice. So you've done a lot of different stuff. I have. It's been fun. I think yeah. people look at my resume and say, what is this guy about? And there's no good answer to that. I'm just, I'm just being me. Nice. Well, since you have such an eclectic resume, what kind of uh, books or TV shows... Or anything, I guess, really, have you been enjoying lately? Well, I watch a lot of TED Talks. So <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, it, I don't think anything That's impacted excellent. my life as profoundly as that third one with Larry Brilliant. But the fact that I came back to the U.S. and dr drifted into tech entrepreneurship is maybe also attributable to the influence of TED. Um, uh, TV, I like Rick and Morty. Oh, and I'm, I'm excited that we're in season three now. If you want sci-fi public health, I think you're probably going to get lots of good material there. Excellent. I definitely, there, uh, I would really, I mean, for future episodes, I would definitely want to interview somebody from NASA. So, yes. Because there's going to have to be space public health. Space health. That's got to be space a thing. Space health. Yeah. Right here on the show today, we have coined the term space health. I just want, it has been recorded. So, thinking about, like, chronic things like nutrition and muscle development, yes, NASA has a whole lot of people, probably, for you to interview, uh, thinking about those things. Uh, yeah. 
Did you know uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were quarantined for about a month after they got back from the moon because nobody knew if there was anything on the moon that could get people sick. And so all of their clothes and everything that they brought back was basically put in a room and they were put in a room and they watched them for like a month to oh make sure gosh. that they How wouldn't they just go crazy? die. Oh my God. And then the ticker yeah. tape parades and everything happened about oh, a month after wow. they got back. It's a little anticlimactic, yeah. but it worked out. Yeah. yeah. So the flip side of that is they also have to sterilize everything that is going up because they don't want to accidentally think that they've discovered life and it turns out it was just a free rider from Earth. And then, you know, for things that are going way out, they don't really want to send Earth parasites or Earth diseases. Like, that would not be a very good first impression. Like, here, here's coronavirus, which you have no natural immunity to. It will wipe out your entire civilization. Have fun. Well, there's an actual job opening right now, right? Against um, alien life forms, a.k.a. like preventing contamination from alien um, organisms on Earth. I didn't hear that. Yeah, there's a little kid that applied for it. He's like seven. I think he's got a good shot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your book that you brought? Right. So as far as as far as far my, my analog media, um, nice. I brought a couple of copies of a book that I read in South Sudan that had really nothing to do with guinea worm, but it does, it does address public health a little bit in um, the context of exploding urban populations. Oh, yeah. It's uh, a book called Arrival City by Doug Saunders. Mm-hmm. And... Approve? Viral... Recommend? Oh, yeah. One of, one of the best books right, that I've cool. read in, in recent years. So we have out. multiple copies. Maybe some lucky viral listeners can find their way into being recipients of them. Yes. Yeah. In fact, you're the first... Uh, episode guest that has brought us gifts we have copies of arrival city we have guinea worm specific life straws we have um ghanian basically ghanian nickels yeah those are for you though don't give those out oh. i mean i know i know the oh, part, podcasting business is not oh, very lucrative shoot. so that's my contribution oh shoot i think i have to declare never mind those are ours guys um yeah this is pretty sweet Thank you so much for bringing all this stuff. Quinn, what are you up to these days? Um, well, I'm still reading uh, H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald, and that one's really good. Uh, I'm also listening to um, an audible audiobook, and the Harvard Business Review, they do a series of uh, essays and um, other short-form writings that are about things like leadership, emotional intelligence, communication, managing people, uh, all of those kinds of things that you would expect the Harvard Business Review to be good at explaining. And um, I'm currently getting into those, and they're they're pretty good. They're called the the 10 Must Reads, and they basically take a selection of 10... Um, articles or essays about a certain topic and they release them and they get um, people to to read them so yeah I've been enjoying those cool I have um, been doing things that are not scholarly such as 
uh, binge watching Glow, the good, gorgeous ladies of wrestling, and it's incredible. Change your life. Um, it's got um, Allison Brie. Allison Brie, yes, and Mark Marin, who's amazing in it. So that's been really good. Still continuing to trudge on with the X Files. We're on season seven. Um, I will say one of like James and I both really love this most recent episode that we watched called X Cops. It's their version of the show Cops, but X Files, oh, and it's incredible. My God, it's so good. So you mean good? Do you mean like campy and silly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's really That's great. That. It's really great. <laughs> I was um, say I don't think I've heard that one in terms of classic X Files episodes. Listed. That's a Lindsay and James classic. That's sure. <laughs> X cops. Yeah, because we got to that. We got to. We saw the title. and We were like, "What? What is this?" And then we were bad boys. What you want? And we we're like, "No, they didn't do that." There's like a little amazing. Sasquatch running down the street, and they're like, uh, "This little it's alien actually, boy that they have to capture." <laughs> I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but it's in the mean streets of L.A. Little alien boys is like, "Those drugs aren't mine." <laughs> yes. And then there's somehow a shirtless man running around that. being like, I'm not on math. Yeah, that's what happened. That's something Chris Carter always did real well. Take a really dark series and just once in a while inject a little levity to it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's like, you know, the quote unquote monster of the week episodes, mm -hmm. which are great. And then obviously there's always, it goes back to kind of like, oh my God, is Mulder ever going to find his sister? Was she abducted by aliens? Like what's happening? But, but I really do love that format because yeah, the monster of the week episodes are always really great. Is Scully ever going to believe him? No, <laughs> no. Is Scully ever going to like or actually, no. Is Mulder ever going to stop being such a weirdo and make weird references to the amount of porn that he watches a lot and quit telling Scully what to do? You're not her boss. And yeah, I know she's like in charge of doing autopsies, but quit bossing, quit bossing her around. She's a medical doctor. So, that's my beef. Now I know how you feel about... The X-Files. I have a lot of feelings about the X-Files. We need to do a spin-off podcast just about Lindsay's feelings about the X-Files. Oh, man. Called Don't even the, get me started. The L-Files. Oh, man. The L-Files. <gasps> that might get confused, though, with, like, the L-word. Would it? I don't know. Maybe we'll do a, a listener poll. I don't know. But... All right, so here's my thing. I So Scully has a science background. I know. Yeah. Mulder was a criminal profiler. He's, yeah. he's got great insight into the human psyche, we're led to believe. Right? Like, he was the best of Quantico, you know? Like, okay. But yeah, he's just like, no, that's definitely a Mayan death cult. What? Right. What are you talking about? Where, where did he pick up those things, Indiana Jones, huh? Exactly! Exactly! Yes! And what, and it's also an interesting dynamic because Scully is religious, but she's also supposed to be the logical scientific one. So there's that's an interesting dynamic because Mulder is not religious, but he's the, yeah, totally vampires, guys. Like, so, like in the X-Cop one, he's like, yeah, definitely a werewolf. 
And Scully's like, dude, we're on television right now. Like, you're making the FBI look like a bunch of idiots. So, it's pretty great. But yeah, it, it's a... Uh, it's like, okay, so you were studying, you know, your, uh, you know, criminal profiling and behavioral psychology, and then, like, after you were done, you just, like, did a bunch of research on, like, ancient symbology and... Went on sabbatical for, like, ten years and became an expert in everything occult. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, oh, you know, I'm a hobbyist. Hobbyist occult Spends scholar. a lot of his time on the internet. He actually does. The, like, 1993 version of the internet. Yeah. Well, you know, in the basement of the FBI, they had a T1 line, which was fast back then. They were like, uh, I read one article in a day. It was great. <laughs> DOS. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is pretty interesting to watch it now because they're like, oh, my God, they've hacked into the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... Mulder tying up the the phone lines in the house with his AOL. Probably. All that porn. He watches so much porn. It's really weird. But Cool. Cool. On that note, thanks for being our guest, Andrew. We really appreciated you coming on the show. My pleasure. Anytime. And talking about the Carter Center and your experience and bringing us all these awesome gifts and guinea um, worm and space he did not he did not specifically bring guinea worm this time no so so smuggling disease specimens into the country I'm not saying it can't be done I am saying you might get some really really unhappy TSA agents if you try probably yes Yes, and what the listeners don't know is that Andrew actually sent me a picture of a mutant guinea worm, and it was terrifying. Oh, yeah. We could... That might be a fun nice note to end on. Picture of a picture. Yeah, it was, yeah, a, it it was, was a picture. A picture. I, so, my Blackberry Bold went with me to Ooh. Africa and somehow survived, but I don't know how to get stuff off of it. So, we're, we, are, we are stuck with pictures of pictures. It was still terrifying. Did you have it? Yeah. I, I showed it to him and James. And, All right. Yeah, so... and it was... I, I was very surprised, too, because I thought, it's that big? Oh, that's, that's funny, just... because to me, that's not the takeaway at all. Oh. Um, what, what made that special is the case definition of a guinea worm is a hanging white worm. You know, guinea worms oh, are always white. Was white. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. It was pink. So on that flamingo diet, I South Beach. I brought the 2005 article from Tropical Medicine and Parasitology, which contains the only reference I've ever seen to another red worm. We know they are known to science, but they are exceedingly rare. Oh man, that's so weird. That's actually really scary, to be honest. And it was the very last worm I saw. It was Whoa. it was my last patient in like December of 2012. Whoa! Whoa! You may have like last saw one. yeah. That's like yeah, we, real weird. Ooh, that's really weird. Wow! All right, guys. Well, if you see a see a pink worm hanging from your skin, it's really not great. Actually, any worm hanging from your skin is probably not great. I should see a doctor about that, especially here in the U.S. Because guinea worms are not native to the United States, correct? 
that is correct. They are only endemic in a few countries in Sub-Saharan Africa at this point. Um, during my tenure, they were only in South Sudan, Chad, Ethiopia, and Mali. I, I saw the last guinea worm of any color while I was interning in Ghana. So Ghana has been guinea worm free for the better part of a decade now. Um, wow. But we're, we're real close. I think the only place reporting human cases this year was Chad. So it would be, it would be really wholly unprecedented to see endemic transmission in North America. I don't think it's going to happen. If you, if you do see a worm, get that checked out, but it's probably something else. Probably. Yeah. But you know what? If you see something, call your doctor and maybe say something to somebody. Tell somebody about that. Yep. Maybe. All right. Today's public health fact. Smallpox has killed the most monarchs of any disease in recorded history. Thanks for listening to Viral. This podcast was written and produced by Lindsay Grove, that's me, and Quinn Lundquist. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and Easy Boys. If you like our podcast, let us know. Leave a review, visit our website, www.viral-pod.com, and tell your friends. But most importantly, please make sure to wash your hands.